Well, hello, and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast's 100th episode, Man Alive. In this episode, we are joined by Tom Moore and Ross Stewart, the directors of Wolfwalkers. We also welcome back Glenn Keane, the director of Over the Moon, and we meet Vanessa Harryhausen, author of Ray Harryhausen, Titan of Cinema. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another Squiggly Animation Podcast, episode 100. I'm Ben Mitchell, joined by Steve Henderson. Hello, Steve. Hello. And I'm joined by Laura Beth Kelly. Hello. And we're joined by, finally, on an episode of the podcast, Mr. Aaron Wood. Aaron, hello. 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 It's nice to be part of the podcast after... 100 episodes. Yes. Happy birthday, yes. Yeah. It's uh, not for, for lack of invites. You've always been very welcome. <laughs> Thank you. But I always leave it to the pros. You and Steve, you know, you've been doing so well for 99 episodes. So, yeah, that's us. Do you want to spoil a good thing? <laughs> I mean, you've come to spoil it now. That's, that's all you've said. <laughs> yeah. A, a pleasure to have you on board the uh, Squiggly podcast, Aaron, finally. Uh, we've done a few live yeah. things in, in Annecy, haven't we? Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. for the first time, I think you actually might have appeared on a Annecy podcast special that we did because everyone appeared on that one because everyone was drunk in the background. Was this a podcast or a video? Back in See, the everyone was drunk. You can't remember. That's oh, uh, yeah, it was one of the blackout podcasts. <laughs> Sub series. Well, you know, you know me and Annecy. I don't remember a lot to be honest. <laughs> yeah, so could have been been that. So what have we got on this bumper special? A uh, hundred anniversary, spectacular, amazing bumper fun time podcast, Ben. Well, we have directors of a fantastic new film that I think we're all in agreement on is pretty smashing. The film called Wolfwalkers, and the directors are Tom Moore and Ross Stewart from Cartoon Saloon. Yes, indeed. Uh, I believe we're also hearing from Glenn Keane. A previous podcast guest coming back to tell us about his new film, Over the Moon. And uh, Steve, who else? Uh, yeah, we'll also be joined by uh, somebody else celebrating a centenary, Vanessa Harryhausen, who comes to talk about the centenary of her father, Ray Harryhausen, and the new exhibition and new book that's out now. So, yeah, loads of guests for a fun filled, fabby podcast. A stellar lineup. For our uh, landmark episode. Wonderful stuff. Okay, well, until then, gang, what's been happening in the animation sphere? What's been exciting you? Well, I've been busy with all of the online festivals, which are really kind of ramped up in September and October. It seems to be had a bit of a low after Annecy, but then the last couple of months, there's been just one after the other. They've been clashing like three on at the same time last week. So I've just been sat at my computer watching as much, as many short films and pitches as I could squeeze in. So I just finished the Animarket Stop Motion Forum last week mm. um, and the CEE Animation Pitching Forum as well. And now I'm in starting Cardiff. So yeah. what about the festivals online at the moment? You're also doing a talk as well yourself, aren't you? Yeah, I've been doing a, a couple, actually. I've, uh, I was interviewed on Sunday for the for Azerbaijan's anime film. I did a Q&A there, and I've also got another Q&A on Thursday. Well, I don't know when this is going out. This is going to be probably after that. But the Bolton Film Festival, there's an animation strand, and I'm going to be in conversation with Sarah Ann Kennedy, who's going to be talking about how to be a producer and how to produce short films. So, yeah. Superb. 
Uh, anything coming up on the 15th to the 30th of November, Aaron, that you know about? Any any sort One of animation? festival that's in my diary, yeah. It's uh, the 6th Manchester Animation Festival, which is the first ever online festival. Um, released their programme last week, I think. don't know if you know much about that, Steve. I've heard of it, yeah. That's very kind of you, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's great to see. I mean, what do, what do you guys think about online festivals how have you been enjoying them because obviously encounters has finished since we did our last uh podcast which uh, which you guys were heavily involved with uh, ben and laura they've all been very different yeah what we're definitely finding is it's a medium that is finding its footing as the customers vainly attempt to decipher the awful ux and get things to stream properly and tells you oh no you actually watched this already and you can't ever watch it again. No, I didn't. Mm. That's it. That's that program done. Uh, not naming any names, but there were, you know, a few festivals that had a few ghosts in the machine. And it's been really encounters. And I guess the one around the same time that, w- which one was, was it? Salem? Yeah. Those were pretty s- smooth, fluid. I think that the kinks have been worked out. I think it's been interesting because we've also gone to a couple of live action ones and the way they run is very different to how animation runs because animation is predominantly shorts where live action is predominantly features and that's been interesting to see how they handle that yeah. that's a good point actually i haven't seen a lot of feature films w- with the festivals online festival circuit this year it's been mainly about watching shorts all the time i think i saw two at annecy and that's been it this year so far which will all yeah. change with manchester because i know you have two spectacular feature films that you're showing Oh, yeah, we got Joseph, uh, which is a fantastic feature film for, uh, by uh, Aurel. It's it, it's sort of it's a kind of slow start to it, but then when you get into it, you realise that the film is all about it's about the the art of drawing. It's about you know the love of drawing, and it's a it's a really sweet film. And yeah, we, we're delighted to have the the UK premiere of Calamity by uh, Remy Chayet, who was the director of Long Way North. Uh, I saw. I saw a screener of it, and it is absolutely spectacular. I was I was blown away, and um, it's been really weird putting on the festival this year. From a, it's almost like you do it in reverse because we'd usually go somewhere like Annecy, and we'd meet people, and we'd talk about their events and all that sort of stuff, and we'd get excited there and then. Whereas, it, it's it's kind of a it's sort of tilted on its head really because we we we're doing everything via email and not knowing whether or not it's going to be any good. And then when you watch a screener of a film like Calamity, you think, oh, wow, we're actually offering something to our audience that they'll appreciate and they'll enjoy. What's, uh, what's Calamity about? Uh, it's, it's the it's called, full title is Calamity, A Childhood of Martha Jane Canary. It's about Calamity Jane. So it's the, the second origin yeah. story to, um, to Calamity Jane. But it's a film about uh, – it's, it's, it's quite an empowering film. It's, it's full of um, – humor and action and adventure set in the the old west you know with a, a, a family crossing the country to uh, uh you know to find fortune or however those kind of cowboy films go on um and uh, she gets split up from the party uh and has to kind of make her own way and then she she does she return triumphant history books say yes but you know you have to watch how it's done in the film because uh, it's done really well but obviously You've seen Long Way North, I take it. Uh, I have, yes. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that Norlam do incredibly well, uh, as well as like, you know, strong female lead characters, particularly with um, uh, Remy Chayet's last film, Long Way North, is the scenery. 
So with Long Way North, you felt like you were in the Arctic. You felt like you were in the Arctic Circle. Uh, you felt cold. Uh, and that's because of the way that, you know, when the ice was painted in that film, it wasn't just painted white. It was painted all shades of white. And it was, it was painted in such a grand way and it looked amazing. And it's the same with Calamity. With Calamity, it's not just green fields or yellow fields. There's a way that it's done where the screen is filled two thirds with either field or sky, and that just kind of knocks you off, uh, you know, off your feet. So yeah, we really like to be uh, screening that one. Mm. Really looking forward to that. But I'd be right in assuming that the uh, on-screen depiction of Calamity Jane is different to how she's portrayed in Deadwood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She. Uh, yeah. That's a mild shame, but I'm sure it's a good film nonetheless. <laughs> Like I say, see it as the superhero origin story to the being an alcoholic <laughs> woman later in life. Any any particular highlights then for from other festivals that you've that you've seen? Because obviously, you know, social's been a big thing that's that's missing from festivals, and that's the kind of a major thing that festivals need to get right this year, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, a lot of them. I like Ben was saying at the beginning, it was everyone finding their feet, and I think that the more the years gone on, festivals have tried to introduce more and more kind of interactive. Um, chats and parties and things like that I still think it's something that is never going to really work it's just you can't reproduce that that the atmosphere and the way you meet people in the real world by going onto a zoom party and just having a, a wall of faces or anything so it's getting there there's been some really nice attempts at introducing interactive elements to festivals but I just can't wait for the real world well you know normality to go back how it was in a, in a sense because I think we're all missing that that kind of buzz you get when you come out of a cinema and you talk to people about what you've just seen that's that's not really translating online I don't think hmm. well, you obviously run uh, animationfestivals.com uh, or animation-festivals if people are running to the computers to type it in uh, have you noticed any kind of difference in the landscape in oh, terms of a, yeah. that's, it's been a nightmare this year trying to manage that website because every festival in the beginning of the year, changed its dates, and then, oh, then they're back on, and then they're not, and it's kind of been, this year has been, nothing's been very accurate on that site, and a lot of people tr trying to put it off and seeing if things got better, then everyone eventually went online, and some cancelled completely, so I'm starting to see quite a few festivals update their 2021 dates now, even as early as February and March, so there's, there's kind of hope out there on the international scene that, that festivals might go back to some level of normality next next year, early next year, but guess we'll have to wait and see for that. Yeah, they're a lot more hopeful than, than I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's been interesting kind of seeing the difference the year has made from a submitter's perspective, because uh, I have the kind of, you know, the big spreadsheet we both do, where, you know, you go through it each year with whatever film you have under your arm, and inevitably there are a few that get missed the first year, but, you know, I kind of, you know, earmark them or maybe, you know, I don't want to pay the first year, see how well the film does and then maybe submit it to a more expensive festival. And all of the stuff that was earmarked for, you know, this time of year is just not happening. The, you know, their entry on Film Freeway or whatever is, you know, in hibernation. That was a bit of a surprise because of this ongoing conversion to the digital space. I was sort of feeling more like the whole process was still kind of ongoing. It was just sort of adapting on the fly. But what does seem to be happening is a lot of events are just closing up for the time being 
which is a shame because I had a perfect strategy in place, which was to, uh, I, I hadn't ever enacted this, but I had been given some great advice from uh, one of our independent director friends about getting your film into more festivals. If it doesn't get into a festival one year, uh, submit it to the same festival the next year while it's still eligible. To which I was aghast and said, but my friend, it says in the rules that you can't submit a film that you submitted last year. The rules! (laughs) (laughs) To which he very fairly made the point, who gives a shit? What, do you think the interns that they get each year are going to talk to each other about their pre-selection? So... Uh, that was going to be my strategy for a bit of a wider exposure, but alas, uh, it's been snuffed out by uh, a slightly greater issue, but uh, there you go. Well, festivals have to do something about that. I mean, we we have, for math, we, we're allowing people to submit two years on a, on a trot, because um, we are sticklers for that rule, Ben. We're not, you know... <laughs> Our, our interns check our interns being me check that spreadsheet <laughs> to make sure that there's no one uh, you know pulling a fast one on us um but yeah this year we've uh, we've made sure that uh you know if your film doesn't get in for 2020 you can submit again for 2021 and hopefully those that have been screened at 2020 in competition can be screened on the big screen 2021 but you know what i'm interested in is what other festivals are going to do to to support filmmakers because obviously it's a, it's a great year for both of you You've got Speed doing the rounds, Ben, and Laura Beth, you've got uh, The Gift as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how, how have you found it? Not too bad, really, actually. I don't have as much of... I do submit to absolutely anything, <laughs> but I don't I don't mind as much when it doesn't get into things. Sometimes it doesn't get into things that I'm a bit surprised about. But so far, I haven't... I don't really have a strategy. So I'm just like, whatever accepts. I, I'll go. It's fine. I think on a certain um, level, your strategy has been good in the sense that you've been keeping horror events in mind and they've turned out to be quite receptive Mm. and that's the kind of thing that you know is worth encouraging is finding events that are a thematic fit expanding on the kind of okay just everything that accepts animation Um, but if you're going to be more selective say about the ones that do have fees Mm. then it's good to really kind of look at their website see what they've had in their programs before yeah it's probably been about 50 50 animation only festivals and festivals that are like either a mix and also horror. Mm-hmm. Like it's probably gotten to as many horror festivals at this point as it has animation ones. So I think that's helped. And most of the live action ones, like one of them, I don't really understand where it is or what it does, but it's there. <laughs> I don't know when it's happening. They don't tell me, but it's somewhere in England, I think. The, so, the mystery we'll festival. It's kind of. There, there are a few of them floating out there. I'm sure yeah. you've encountered this, Aaron. Where like an event will just kind of come along, and you're like, "What? What is it? Like, what does it do? Like, what, where?" Um, especially with Film Freeway at the moment, there's a lot more things happening with Film Freeway where they're just like, "You can submit your film for whatever this is." Yeah. Like magazines now are using Film Freeway as like a way of yeah, you. I've come across this for so many things. Do right? They uh, universities had like little screening they want to do for the university students, and that's all. And they they set up a festival and you know very commerce type thing it's it's people are using it for all sorts of they're using it wrong wrong yeah yeah if the eligibility <laughs> parameters are the students of the high school you teach at you don't need a film freeway listing is my thinking but i love how specific some of them get like that's my favorite thing is finding like really anally retentive specific festivals and be like i i will submit to this Oh, well, of course. I'm, sh- I'm sure you remember this. I um, came across a festival 
that was thematically uh, about paddleboarding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no way. And, and, you know, of course, I made a film, you know, five or so years ago where it's literally just a guy on a paddleboard for the whole film. Uh, not a paddleboard, but um, he's paddling his raft along. You know, the art of paddling was certainly a key component of this film. And uh, that didn't get in. <laughs> oh, I remember you saying <laughs> Fucking nerve of these people. <laughs> The best oh. is that if you look at their festival logo, it was identical to the poster for the film. <laughs> it was a guy in silhouette with a paddle and an oar. You were mocking paddleboarding, <laughs> you bastard. Yeah, yeah, no. I wasn't taking the craft seriously enough. The problem with that, though, is that right early on in the film, his paddle gets taken away from him. So there wasn't and enough thus. paddling. That was it, Ben. It's more Too much floating. drifting to paddling mm. ratio. Something I wish that had been your the... feedback. Yeah. <laughs> you want to send, send this to the drifting film festival? Who would think this is? Our sister, our sister festival. Uh, what was the, I found like the most amazing festival, which was so insanely specific, but then it wasn't running. I was so upset, but it was a horror festival for women about menstruation. Or it wasn't about menstruation, but it was it used menstruation as its like deadlines. It was like spotting, heavy flow, the end is nigh. Oh, like different. <laughs> yeah, dates. like the, de- right, the deadlines okay. were set up as menstruation, and I think there was like an a- I think it was called axe wound. Oh. <laughs> and you didn't get into axe wound? No, it it wasn't running. I'm so uh, I'm definitely submitting next year. I'm very excited about axe wound festival. You want to pencil in? Yeah, when uh, things return to normal. Mm. But I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting time for festivals. Um, but obviously, we, it, it's, it's great to see, uh, you know, Cardiff are doing, doing amazing work this year as well. Uh, that will probably be in full flow, won't it, while we're, uh, well, when this podcast goes up? It uh, will have kicked off, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, we're recording this sort of two days before. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, a lot of great stuff on that goes, I think. I think the stuff's available until November 1st, so it'll be on for a good few days. But, yeah, wonderful stuff. They got, um, well, I mean, they've migrated a lot of the original program to this online version. They have Trevor Hardy, I think, was going to be there. Uh, he's doing a kind of virtual thing. Tanya and Visible and Visuals, uh, they were going to do a panel before it was called Visible and Visuals, but uh, now they're going to do one. The Shorts Films programs, I think they're doing kind of like live stream things and then they're available on demand. Yeah, they're doing like watch parties. And that's something that the Cardiff team have been really great at. They've been kind of keeping that going with Cardiff Animation Nights, which was, you know, this wonderful excuse to go have a piss up in Wales. Uh, And now it's a wonderful excuse to have a piss up in the comfort of your own home and not have to cross the bridge. But uh, yeah, so they've got like a really good system for that, which I'm sure will translate really well. And it's really nice to chat with people while the films are on. I think that's been one of the great ways of kind of capturing a bit of the community vibe is sort of taking that live stream component and adding it to it. So we're looking forward to that. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff. That's at cardiffanimation.com. I had a glimmer of hope for moving on to another UK festival, um, London Animation Festival, which happens end of November, start of December. That, That was... They put on their Facebook wall a couple of weeks ago that they're hopeful of doing online and also events at the Barbican, which kind of gave me hope that maybe things were getting back to normal. I think between us recording this and the podcast going out, everything could change, of course. But there was a kind of glimmer of hope that at least it's being thought of that there there could be a way of bringing back some live events at festivals, which was nice to see. 
so we'll see how that goes i guess that's any that's a brave festival director that will will roll those dice and say we're going to have some live events and you know because right very on early on in the beginning of planning for manchester we were talking about hybrid events we were talking about maybe putting on you know a couple of screenings at, at home where we usually host and then the rest all being online i don't know yeah wow uh, wouldn't that be amazing if they could i would uh, love it if, if that happened even if mm -hmm. one event happened i would be there like a shot just to soak in that real world you know festival atmosphere again but who have knows? you been to a cinema at all yet anyone i've been twice to a completely empty cinema to see Bill and Ted and Tenet. Um, yeah, I was one of the first times that there was four people in each corner of the cinema, and the second time I was the only one in the whole cinema. <laughs> I don't know how did you find it? I was, like wearing the mask and stuff. Yeah, it's not comfortable to be honest, but um, it's all right. You know, mm. you get used to it. Cinemas, uh, it, it's a it's a very trying time for them, especially independent cinemas like. Um, you know, the watershed like home at, at Manchester and, and many others up and down the country. Um, it, it, it's, it's a difficult time for them. And when, when you see these kind of a big blockbusters that have announced that they're not going to be screening anymore in cinemas, you know, there was a big fury, wasn't there, earlier on in the month about um, when, uh, when cinemas decided that they weren't going to be uh, screening uh, particular films. Um, and it turned out that... Uh, like so, um, what's what's which one? Tenant, uh, Tenant, and um, which was the other one that was withdrawn recently? Big blockbuster that was going to come and Tenet save cinema. Tenant wasn't withdrawn though. No, no, not Tenant. Uh, oh, the one that was it, James Bond or something? James, there you go, James Bond. Yeah, um, yeah. That that indie flick that I obviously couldn't muster up the brain power to name Laura. So thanks for thanks for reminding me that of the James Bond franchise. But yeah, when James Bond uh, decided that uh, he wasn't going to go back to cinemas, there was obviously a lot of fuss about that. Um, a lot of people kind of forget that you know when people say Tenet will save cinema or James Bond will save cinema. It's not the case. So when Aaron buys his popcorn and his and his drink, that's what's saving cinema. You know, the overheads, they, they just need to sell popcorn. They should, just put, bit. they should just put popcorn on Deliveroo. That's all they should do, and they'll keep cinemas open. It'll be fine. I was just aghast that Bill and Ted didn't save cinema. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of cinematic treats, shall we greet one of our first guests and talk wax lyrical about one of the films? Yes, sure. Why not? Tom Moore and Russ Stewart are joining us in this episode, and they have directed a new feature film, The Cartoon Saloon, called Wolfwalkers, and it is quite something. Woo. I'm sure we all agree. Absolutely. I saw this as part of uh, London Film Festival, uh, which was that was a fantastic way of presenting uh, features as well. We talked about the best way of presenting features. Getting up early on a Saturday morning to watch cartoons. That's, uh, that's how it should be. Um, but yeah, I, even though it was on the small screen, I was blown away by it. I thought it was an absolute masterpiece. And as much love as I've got for The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, Wolfwalkers just beats them both hands down. It's a fantastic film. I didn't think either of us had sort of pitted any of them against one another, but I think that... They're There's like definitely children, a, they're all my favourite. <laughs> There's definitely a line they're going in, in the sense that any filmmaker, you know, the first handful of films you will learn and grow artistically, and by virtue of it being the newest one, I certainly 
you know, enjoy it a great deal. I think when, you know, when the dust settles on it, I think I'll, I'll have a kind of, I'll put them all on a pretty similar shelf. But either way, the point remains, it is amazing. Uh, beautiful art, lovely little story. And I think something that Tom Moore does especially well, he takes, you know, the subject matter that is, in this case, a little bit more obscure and really elevates it with a narrative that any audience can get on board with. You know, you look up Selkies and you find a bunch of stuff about Selkies. If you look up Wolfwalkers, you find this film. Hmm. And uh, the the origins, and he goes into it a little bit, um, the origins are a little bit more specific and I think less kind of uh, out in the light. So yeah, it's a really nice idea. And you know, that's the thing is, there's a dirty word no one really wants to say, which is werewolves. I was going to say, is it the Irish werewolf? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, essentially, you know, is in terms of purposes, it's, it's, you know, the similarity is that there are you know, people who are connected to and turn into wolves that are not just sort of wolf wolves, but wolves with a kind of supernatural, mystical ability and kinship with one another. Really, I think what it's especially appealing about the film is as someone who is a fan of animals and a fan of dogs and a fan of wolves and the majesty of capturing that animalistic behavior in all of its facets, there's the very brutal side, you know, the bloodthirsty, you know, mind on the hunt side. And then there's the lovable, playful side, the side that's very, you know, and both of those sort of aspects are captured really well. Yeah, this was a great film to just drink in, you know. Just in, in, in terms of the animation as well, it goes beyond those kind of sides and, and really pushes the animation. Um, you mentioned the wolves. There's a moment quite early on in the film when they're chasing some sheep and they're running around in a circle. And it's like mm. they've animated water with wolves' heads, but it still maintains the sort of equilibrium and movement of, uh, of, of, of you know, a frantic chase. It's just so well done. And obviously the animation... Uh, it, it's a film of contrast by design and by by style as well. So obviously you've got two main characters, um, Robin and Mabe, the two uh, two main girls in the film. Uh, Robin uh, is from uh, from the north of England. Great to hear all those northern accents. I'm, I'm a big fan, uh, rather than people pretending to do northern accents. Um, and uh, and she's moved to Kilkenny in Ireland, uh, which is a very square, very drab town, very sort of, um, well, it's, it's uh, portrayed as such. Obviously, it's a lovely town, but um, it, it's, it's done in kind of lino cut. So the design for the town is based on lino cut. Whereas when you go to nature, particularly when you see this kind of wolf vision, it's all loose flowing pencil lines and uh, beautiful colours and smudges and things like that. And you see the characters evolve throughout the film as well. So they uh, capture a bit of each other's world. And there's some lovely moments where there's the swapping of that. And ah, it's just, yeah, it's a gorgeous film. Aaron, did you get a chance to see it yet? No, I've not seen it yet. I was waiting for there to be a bit of a gathering where someone's got Apple TV things set up and we were going to have a nice big watch of it. But I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon now. So I'm looking forward to seeing it, though. So yeah, so we're talking to Tom, we're also talking to Ross Stewart. Uh, Tom and Ross, um, I mean, they've worked together for a while at Cartoon Saloon in various capacities. I think the first directing gig they had together was when they worked on The Prophet, and that was about five years ago now. Yeah, so we talked to Tom around the time of that, so it's really nice to be able to chat with both of them about this one. Uh, shall we go ahead and hear from Tom and Ross? 
Yeah, let's. Right on. Well, I mean, obviously, firstly, so many congratulations on the film. We're obviously huge fans of your work, uh, but this really is, you know, it's, it's something else. Thanks so much. Thank you. And I'm, that's all I'm seeing as far as the reaction. Everyone is just, who's been able to see it is just in love with it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, it stands out. If someone has a negative reaction, it seems out of the, out of the ordinary, and it's definitely <laughs> in the minority. So it's been really nice. It's been very affirming for the whole team. There was a whole lot of people put a lot into this one. And I kind of got felt a lot, felt a lot of the crew. We had some old friends who'd been through the other movies with us, but there were some young people who joined the crew. And, you know, I think for them, it was a big deal to get onto a feature. Some of them had worked on our TV shows before. Some of them had worked in, you know, smaller roles, and it was their first chance to supervise or be a lead. And so for all of them, they brought so much. Like, they all, like, this was a project where I feel everybody felt the pressure of the previous, even the breadwinner. Anyone who'd come from the breadwinner felt like, wow, we, like, we did something good there. Let's go even further so it's nice to see that work being appreciated it was an amazing collaborative yeah. effort and then you know? and then a lot of young people that uh, would have come like straight from college or, or from overseas and um i suppose th- like their enthusiasm uh shone through in their creativity too in that like even uh you know our our production designer maria perea um like she had so much energy to put into every single role and every single piece of art that she did just because like it was also exciting for her. Whereas maybe Tom himself were had a little bit of that like fatigue oh. of all the all the men, <laughs> all the warriors. One more battle. <laughs> Ross, I don't think we've um had you on before. Uh, and it would be great to uh, introduce it to the audience. Could you tell us a bit about yourself as an artist and uh, how you came to be a part of Cartoon Saloon? Well, Tom and myself have been friends since we were 11. We went to the same secondary school and then ended up going to the same uh, animation college in Dublin. And then um, when when both of us graduated, um, Tom was telling me that, um, uh, that they were starting to work on a film, uh, which ended up being The Secret of Kells. So I moved down with a bunch of others to Cartoon Saloon's first kind of like uh, first room. Um, and um, yeah, ended up being the art director on Secret of Kells, uh, worked on that for quite a few years and then um, worked on Paranorman, um, went over and worked in Leica for a little bit and worked for Chris Butler then on that project for quite a while. And then when I came back, I worked on Song of the Sea um, in in like early con- concepts and production design and um did a lot of freelance work for other studios and stuff then still for Leica and for uh, blue sky and a few other clients and then uh tom myself did the profit um which which you uh you were just mentioning there and then because that worked out quite well we decided to give a feature film a go and here we are Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. seven years later or something like that. Yeah. Obviously, you guys are known for creating these wonderful narratives around established folklore and mythology. And with this one, it was sort of, I think, newer to me as far as its roots, I suppose. So, yeah, was this based on stuff that was particularly important to you growing up? This was a curiosity for me. I only heard about it as a teenager when I was in Young Irish Filmmakers. Yeah. I came across the fact that we even had, like, it's so sad, but the history of Ireland has 
we've kind of lost the sense of the wolves, you know, they mm. we used to be called Wolflands, you know, and I saw a documentary called Wolfland about how Ireland was so um, uh, connected with wolves that there was all these connections that even during the, the Salem witch trials, anybody from Kilkenny, which is the area we grew up in, was immediately suspected of being a werewolf, you know, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I didn't know that and I, I hadn't known that. And I remembered when Ross and I first started talking about the idea for the movie, that these stories, the, the wolves of Ossery or the man wolves of Kilkenny were something that we could dive into but they were kind of lesser known they definitely weren't seen as sacred or anything it wasn't like everybody in the country had an idea about what they were most of us hadn't really heard of it so it allowed us to kind of go on a shopping trip through that folklore and find the parts that made sense for this story and leave other parts out or, or reinvent other parts and mix things up certainly the whole aspect that they were healers and things like that was another idea that we originally had an idea that the character that became Maul's mother was originally kind of like a godmother. Mm-hmm. And she was like uh, based on Biddy Early, who was this like famous healer um, from Irish folklore as well, much more recent folklore. And so we kind of ended up, you know, stirring up a lot of different little elements to create something that felt very much of a, of a tradition, but it was kind of our take yeah. on it, you know. And I think we we probably were able to get away with that because the 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 actual tale of the wolf people of Ossery w- was so unknown. Like you couldn't do that maybe with Cúchulainn or Fionn McCool mm. or some of the more famous um, you know myths and legends. But like I'd say, most of the people even walking down the streets of Kilkenny would never have heard of the wolf people of Ossery. Um, it's very, very like it's you know it's in it's small little compendiums of folk tales uh, braided away. It's really not that well known, well, I, so that so we could really mess around with it. A bit. I think that even speaks to the theme though, because we were trying to reclaim something that had been utterly eliminated, and we were talking about species extinction and what you lose beyond just the animal. You lose this connection that cultures and societies have that connect yeah. with the animal. Like you see it happening with the jaguar in the Amazon now. You know that the jaguar is more than an animal. It's like a spirit, or a, you know it. it it's an embodiment for the indigenous people and as the amazon is being destroyed it's so sadly similar to the fact that the forests were eliminated and the wolves were eliminated in ireland at the same time yeah like irish society you couldn't help but think that it would be a very different society if wolves still roamed the countryside i mean the fact that like we don't have any megafauna or any predators that we need to be scared of has made the irish culture a certain you know in a certain way and the fact that we we would be able to go for a walk through the woods and never fear for our life. You know, you couldn't help but think that if wolves are still out there, that we that we might be a different people. Mm. And have a different respect for nature. Yeah. yeah. It also sort of put me a little bit in mind of, like, Navajo mm-hmm. culture as well, especially mm-hmm. with the sort of... The skinwalkers and everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm really interested in that at the moment. I've been reading as much as I can get my hands on. I was fascinated there during the start of the lockdown. There was this, um, the Navajo and the Hopi had a hard, they were hit the hardest um, in America because they didn't have the basic, uh, you know, hygiene available to them. You know, they were living such poor lifestyles in some cases that uh, there was a big, uh, uh, there was like a collection made uh, and, um, Irish people donated like massively more than anybody else for this uh, charity that was for the Navajo. And I thought it was so interesting. And then I realized, and I've been reading about it, that during the Irish famine, the Choctaw nation gave money to the Irish during the famine. And it started this whole reciprocal uh, uh, gift exchange 
um, over the centuries between Ireland and the Native American people. Hmm. And it's only now that I'm seeing the amount of similarities in our folklore and even in our pre-Christian societies and way of looking at the world. It's really interesting to me that the indigenous worldview of the um, Native American people is so similar to the um, the pre-Christian worldview of the matriarchal pagan society that existed in Ireland. It's really interesting. Mm. But not something I was hugely know I knew that much about when we were first developing Wolfwalkers. We didn't speak to that too much. But it is interesting, the other parallels. Yeah, isn't it weird? And I think it's something about um, living um, uh, a lifestyle that's much, much closer to nature. You know, mm. it's like you, you, you end up coming up with all these stories and um, myths and stuff that are related to how human like personhood extends beyond the human. Like mm. they felt that they were coexisting with other persons, which is really interesting to me. That's why I think like the whole, um, the whole, um, you know, Puritan Cromwellian, uh, you know, advance across Irish society was such a, such a conflict because they had the view that um, man had dominion over nature and wildness needed to be tamed. And it was their duty, their God given duty to like bring civilization to these savages and stuff. So, um, so they, they actively were trying to stamp out a lot of those things that were such core beliefs to the older pagan way of living that you were part of nature you know the puritans at that time really saw themselves that they were above nature that they needed to I, name nature yeah and i was blown away by when i read about the choctaw being moved from mississippi over to oklahoma it was almost the exact same thing cromwell had this famous saying that was like the heller to connacht and he moved or like even my family would trace their history to be moved from the center of ireland over to the west by cromwell and it's a really similar kind of attitude where it's just like displacing the indigenous people who know, know how to live in balance with the land because you've got this arrogant sense that we know better and we're going to civilize it and stuff. And they end up the ripples of that attitude. Like you can still feel them today, you know, whether you're talking about the States or you're talking about here. Um, I think we're kind of all suffering under the, 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 the ripples that have come out from the, the colonial mindset that came from that time period. So to that then, was Cromwell in that period of time always sort of in your mind as far as the story? Yeah, that that and the Wolf of the Ossery were kind of came up over one one discussion over lunch, like seven years ago. Ross and I were just mm -hmm. talking about the types of things we wanted to explore. And we knew we wanted to talk about species destruction because we we're both so conscious of the modern sixth extinction and the, the biodiversity challenges that we're facing now. And then we also... You know, we obviously wanted to speak to the polarization that's been happening for the last seven years. Like, and it's only gotten worse and worse since we started the movie and that people can't see beyond their own point of view. So 1650 and the, 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 that whole period in Irish history seemed like, you know, a little bit of a, a root cause that even the stuff that you see going on in Northern Ireland today can be traced back to this intransience that people have so much in common, yet they only see themselves each other as the other and that they can't transcend that boundary. And we mm -hmm. kind of wanted to speak to that a bit with the fact that Robin could see past that and make friends with Maeve and Maeve could see past that and make friends with Robin despite their differences, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the fact that like um, during that time, there wasn't just like a white widespread slaughter of wolves across the country, but also the, the natural um, woodland was totally deforested and, and Ireland lost a huge amount of woodland in that short space of time just across those, that conquest um, with the result now that Ireland is one of the least forested countries in Europe um, so we still have that hangover from that, from that era and I think that kind of is relevant now in that um, you know like the destruction that we do to, to the planet right now 
could be felt for hundreds and hundreds of years you know even if people try and repair it we're doing such damage now that it, it might never you know it might be pretty much impossible to to undo it mm. so i think it's you know there's a good parallel there between the environmentalism of of today versus what happened 400 years ago yeah. and absolutely the the heart of the film well that has a few hearts but certainly the one that does kind of stand out is that dynamic between maven robin and it is such a wonderful thing to see how it kind of builds and their connection that they share. And then as the film goes on, it sort of struck me, it's mostly kind of tying the concept of Wolf Walkers with women, coupled with that sort of pairing, I guess, at the core of the film. Is that something that was a conscious story element, the sort of marriage of this mythology with womanhood at that time? There was a matriarchal worldview, that mm-hmm. we lost, even with Christianity, when you look at the the Irish devotion to the to the Holy Mother, which is kind of an echo of a of a you know goddess worship that preceded that, and a and a way of seeing nature as as a female and very strong. Cucullin was trained by a woman, you know, that there was a strength a strength in in womanhood. But you know, we we kind of stumbled on it. We always knew that the Wolfwalkers would represent that, and we thought that their cave would be decorated by these Sheila Nagag and you know we really thought about that kind of thing but it was it was after a draft or two of the script with Will that we realized that Robin needed to be a girl and then we kind of everything changed like from the idea of this being a little boy like we'd done in the previous movies mm-hmm. to this being a girl and this friendship being two girls rather than the, the what we'd explored before changed the whole dynamic and the whole like it became more obvious that Robin's story was the most important one. And we before that, we'd been getting a bit lost in Bill and Robin. Like who was, we were more interested in Bill a lot of the time. Right. And, and then when it became Robin's story, we were like, okay, well, like a young girl in this time period, what she would have to overcome. I mean, it's still very hard for young women, I think, to find their way in the world and not be kind of um, downtrodden to a certain extent. But certainly in 1650, you were either a scullery maid or a witch, you know, and, and that made the whole, just, you know, the whole thing uh, click together so much more. Mm. And that sort of environment that they find themselves in, and it is so appealing the way the wolves themselves are portrayed, and they have these kind of different sides to them, I suppose, or these different kind <laughs> of, depending on where they are, when they're at ease or when they're kind of at play, and they just kind of crack you up, like just sort of there in the background with that beautiful, like sort of face of canine vacancy that's also kind of you know, very alert. Yeah, butt sniffing. And we've had dogs in the studio that crack us up yeah. all the time. So, yeah. But it, like, um, you know, the, again, going back to the idea of wolves, uh, you know, the fact that they're a mega predator um, would immediately make people think like that that's the only side to them. But uh, when we were doing a lot of research, looking into into videos from conservation centers and that, they have such doggy behavior, and they really like mess around and play around when they're when they're around their den and they're comfortable, as you say. Uh, they they have such personality, and they really just will, will tend to spend a lot of the time playing in that, like you know, highly social creatures. So. I suppose throughout the film, like we we see the bad side of them when we see them attacking, like which is what the townspeople would probably only see. And then as we journey with Robin and we actually go into where they live, then we do get to see this playful, goofy side. And the fact that there can be this contrast between like the one that the you know the one creature can have these two sides to them is is probably is like very authentic, you know, because any of those predators they are 
killers, but they also are like they also have social. their family and they also like play around. And, uh, I think the thing that draws us as well to wolves is they're so social. Yeah, and also that wonderful visual concept of when they're kind of in the pack on the move together and they become this sort of like liquid almost mm-hmm. like sort of water rushing mm-hmm. and uh, yeah i'd love to hear a bit about some of the the visual development that leads to those sort of ideas we have well, this um italian yeah. um uh, character designer animator federico Piravano, um who came over um on the strength of his portfolio is a little bit kind of wacky and wild, but he had this beautiful way of drawing. And Tom said he, he was willing to take a chance on him. <laughs> and, uh, and he ended up drawing, drawing the characters in such a beautiful way. But one of the things he did was, was, uh, you know, animate, do the first animation test of the wolves all moving like liquid and moving like a, as if it was one big broiling mass of hair, you know, with little heads popping out from here and there. And it was just, it captured the whole, essence of the energy and and the the fluidity and and how the wolves should act like in total contrast to the towns people who are very geometric you know the wolves should convey this wild free uh, elusive kind of instinctive nature you know so it made sense for them to move as if they were like one one liquid shape there's a nice sort of environmental disparity as well when it comes to when we're in the forest and when we're in the town and it seems like it, each sort of scenario kind of takes different design cues, perhaps. Like, was one kind of more rooted, I guess, in the art of the time, or is it just sort of... Yeah, it was like that. We said we'd, we'd represent the Puritans in that kind of woodblock print, because we saw oh. these pamphlets where they were... It was like the fake news of the day. They'd print these pamphlets of how disgusting and violent and <laughs> awful the Irish were. And so that was, that was like really rushed prints and they had a kind of offset to them because sometimes they wouldn't exactly line up the plates properly when they were printing and things like that. And like just the geometry of it and, and trying to push the cage-like geometry and a lot, lot of influences as well in the town from like um, German expressionism, using shadow and black and things like that to kind of frame the frame the town and that was like really deliberately we even worked with like um different scene illustration illustration artists for each part of the the environment so like we would have had background artists like who had a background in printmaking like clara and then in this in the forest we were much more interested in exploring that princess kaguya sketchy you know pencily watercolor kind of um approach that would we kind of speak to the same thing we were talking about with the wolves and the soldiers that you had that contrast. And then probably the most difficult thing was trying to like make it all feel like one universe that the characters could transverse and we weren't popping from one movie to another. Mm-hmm. So we had this kind of in-between place between the forest and the town, the kind of farmland. And that was quite interesting challenge because we had to sort of slowly migrate from one style to another and then always feel like it was the same movie. So. Yeah, it was more of a gamble, like from from in the few sequences where we pop from the town out into the forest, or where even when Robin is in the forest, she does she she shouldn't feel like a, a character from a different movie. You know, she has to just feel like a character that's maybe in a in a like out of place or something like that, but not from a different movie. So the the cleanup styles, while they did have to be different, they still had to feel of the same world. You know. Um, so, like, this sketchy, pencil line has to work with the woodblock line 
of the environments and the characters, you know. So that that was probably one of the harder challenges of uh, the visual exploration. Yeah, I think it was the most featurey we've ever been about the cleanup because I think in the past we couldn't really afford um, to take too many chances with the final line animation. And we put all our energy into like really strong pose-to-pose animation. But this time we had an in-house... Um, you know, cleanup department or final line department in all the studios in France and Luxembourg and in Kilkenny. And we asked them to sort of, you know, think not like technicians, but like artists. And it was always a challenge. Like, where is Robin at at this point? Is she scratchy? Is she more wild or is she more in line with the town? And how are we going to do her final line to represent that? So mm-hmm. it didn't matter if she was in the forest or in the town. It mattered where she was in her head because she could carry the town into the forest or the forest into the town, you know, but that would be representing how she was drawn. Awesome. One last thing I'd love to chat about. I saw that you're working again with uh, Bruno and uh, is it Kelia or Kelia? Kila, Kila, yeah, Kila. And I, I think, have you worked with them for all three films? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was kind of part of the, the feeling of getting the old team back together. You know, we mm-hmm. kind of worked together before. We wanted this to feel of a piece with the previous two movies. It was a very conscious choice that we wanted it to feel like a continuation of the themes and ideas in the previous movies. And so obviously we wanted to work with the same musicians. And what was interesting in this one, because everyone's evolving and changing over the years, you know, but what was really interesting is that we kind of leaned on Bruno for the more formal side of things, like mm-hmm. the orchestra and the composing. And then we, he, when he worked with Kila, he was much freer and more loose and he could do more experimenting and just see what came up, kind of a jamming session. And so that kind of spoke to the, the themes of the movie as well, how we talked about things. So it's always been like that when we work with them, that we never know exactly what it's going to be, but we always trust that they're going to find something that works with the movie. And probably the most exciting part of the process for me, because McGross is a musician himself, but I don't have any musical ability whatsoever. So for me, that part of it is completely, um, you know, exhilarating to see it all come together. Excellent. Cool. Well, guys, thanks so much, and uh, congratulations again. Best of luck with the wider release. I can't wait to check it out again. Let everyone on Squiggly know to go and find it where it's on in a cinema if they can, if they can, because it's going to be in cinemas in the UK. So give it a give it a shot. Yeah, on the big we'll uh, we'll give it a good plug-in. Thanks, man. Thanks, thanks, cool. Ben. Thank you. Have a good day, guys. So thank you to Tom Moore and Ross Stewart, directors of Wolfwalkers. And true to my word, you can indeed check out the film at cinemas throughout the UK from Monday the 26th. Obviously, with the current situation, it's a little bit different, but the best way to check out where it's playing nearest to you is to go to wolfwalkers.movie, and that will pop up a handy little search for nearest cinemas playing and when it will be playing. So yes, from the 26th of October, it will be in 75 cinemas across the UK, hopefully expanding to 150 roughly on the second weekend. And from the 11th of December, it will be available on Apple TV+. I was told also that there is a plan to hopefully get it playing in cinemas in Ireland, But at the moment, because of the COVID situation, everything's still closed. They don't quite know the situation. But again, if you go to wolfwalkers.movie, that will have all the information that you need. Wunderbar! Hey! As it's our 100th episode, I'm sure we've got a crowd of enthusiastic fans eager to let us know what they think of us reaching this milestone, eh? I think, uh, yeah, we, we put out a call to say, we've done 100 episodes, shower us with praise, we need validation. And a few people got back in touch, which is lovely. We learned uh, some lessons about the world of Twitter these last few weeks, which we can circle back around to in a minute. <laughs> but um, in the meantime, 
Shall we, uh, shall we read out some things people have had to say? Yeah. So Ben Herndon at the Herndon on Twitter says, uh, this podcast is so great to listen to when you're animating big, stupid 350 frame shots that just seem to never end. Ha 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 ha. Stops me going insane. Glad that the podcast can stop people going insane. That's the complete opposite of what we want to do. We want to drive people insane, but uh, it's nice nonetheless. From Blue Artisan at Blue underscore Artisan, congrats to Squiggly for Podcast 100. All brilliant podcasts dedicated to some fab animation. The Squiggly Film Club was a treat in lockdown, and my fave was the BFG, because I love that film, and Cosgrove Hall. Mr. Henderson's insight on the film was delightful. Uh, unfortunately, this isn't the Squiggly Film Club. That's only had 21 episodes. So We'll, we'll have to do some more. We'll have to get up to 100 on the Squiggly <laughs> Film Club. It'd be nice to do some Christmas Squiggly Film Clubs, wouldn't it? I think we mentioned that on the the close of the last one and seen as lockdown That'd be nice. like it will never end <laughs> I, I like the idea of doing more for christmas superb thank you to uh, at blue underscore artisan oh in the dms mm-hmm. i've got one from our pal beverly yang squiggly is great in that there are so many different viewpoints from within animation production also love the opportunity it gave me to be on the journalism side what a treat for insight Beverly, uh, of course, did some interviews for us and uh, more recently was part of a visible and visuals panel, which is worth checking out uh, in the podcast archive there. And uh, from a Mr. Chris Bowles, we have, you might say that I come for the animation and end up staying for the lols. Yes, indeed. Another uh, another listener from back in the day, uh, fellow uh, Bristolian as well. And uh, you can find him on the social medias as Bristol Animator, if memory serves. Wonderful stuff. Great stuff. Uh, we've also got one from Danny Abraham at Bintykins. She says, I always love and appreciate your festival coverage and interviews with indie creators and directors, but animation can sometimes find you in lonely places. And so my favorite thing about Squiggly is that it's been a friend to me twice while living out in Ireland solo and especially in pandemic year, bringing back Chatty Tuesday and starting the film club, which was so lovely watching along with Mary and Max. Thank you, Danny. That's lovely. Uh, right on. Well, yes, uh, maybe we'll have some more uh, comments later on in the episode. As I mentioned before, we had a bit of an adventure with Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago that I I guess kind of broke the website, although the jury was out on just how connected those things were. But it seems like a hell of a coincidence to me. Yes, it was. Yeah. It, broke, it was. It was the Twitter. There's, there was no coincidence. I think looking into it. Right in the last episode of this podcast, we were talking about a new show that had been picked up by A24 by a lady called Vivzy Pop, called Has Been Hotel, and uh, wasn't one that was really enormously on our radar, other than being something we were kind of vaguely aware of. But on online, it had amassed this huge YouTube following. Anyway, as it turns out, uh, put up a news piece about a sub-series or a kind of accompanying series with a bunch of the same premises and characters called Hell of a Boss. And that will be an online-only YouTube series, I think initially and maybe broadcast later, I'm not sure. And people went fucking batshit for it. <laughs> but it was, it was a pretty nondescript piece. It was, it was from the casting uh, agency involved. And I guess that press release was the first official word on this thing existing. And people uh, all across the world in the um, uh, Vivzy Pop 
fandom collectively shit their britches and uh, came at us and knocked the site out of existence for, I don't know, about 10 hours, something like that. So cheers, Vivzipop. Uh Best of luck on your show. I have a feeling it's going to do well. <laughs> Just call it a hunch. <laughs> that was nice. It's, it's nice when we find a new audience. Because I think what, what amused me is that, obviously, the, the audience for Vivzipop stuff are quite, you know, generalized, quite young. You know, quite new to the internet. These are sort of, you know, almost even school children who went, they kept messages on Twitter going, is this real? Is this a real website? We're like, fuck <laughs> off, we're a real website. <laughs> is this a, a real, real website? website? You, you little prick. Yeah. Who are you to- asking if I'm a real website? I've got t-shirts older than you, you little shit. I had an existential crisis. Like, am I a real website? <laughs> <laughs> It's just nice to have new fans. <laughs> yes, um, and I'm sure they all stuck around. <laughs> it is interesting how much I kind of realize from time to time what our audience is and how much it's not cartoon fans, mm. oddly enough. Like, our, our, our metrics, when you kind of look at them, it's animation enthusiasts, which is a slightly different and uh, significantly less voluminous uh, area of society. It's a little bit more polite, I think, in general. There's less outright murder threats. Like, if you've ever kind of read about some of the toxic fandoms of uh, certain popular shows over the years, there's something about, like, if if you have a character do something that a 14-year-old girl doesn't think you should have done, she will end your fucking soul. <laughs> God love them. I mean, I like to see fire in the bellies of... Uh, today's youth they are the future don't you know (laughs) and they're gonna need that energy for when we're all you know literally on the streets fighting over pigeon carcasses which is where i think things are going you guys will do all right in bristol one (laughs) yeah our balcony is a pigeon carcass trap we'll be rich all you can eat buffet people will come from miles around for quality pigeon meat bedded lorras (laughs) What the fuck am I talking? Oh, yeah. We'll be the king <laughs> so, king <of> times. <laughs> so, yeah, this was a little sort of reminder, I think, that, yeah, oddly enough, there's this whole area of, like, cartoon fandom that we don't really tap into. But it's also this kind of suggestion of, of what that would be like if we had to deal with it on a day-to-day basis. It would be fucking exhausting. Well, we just ignore it. It, well, it's hard though when it's 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 shutting your website down and like every thirty seconds you're getting notifications on Twitter and it's only thirty seconds because that's like the gap it gives you on your phone. But I, th- I think there's a lot of things that we obviously avoid as well. Um, there's 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 very it's very easy to kind of jump on board with the content that 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 particular aspect of of animation or let's just say cartoon fandom. Uh, love debating feverishly. So like um, it was announced earlier on in the week, the fact that um, uh, Disney have updated content warning for that they might have racism in, in, in earlier films. And, and that headlines enough for some people to, to just launch into, you know, real kind of uh, venom about how it's wrong and how Disney shouldn't be putting up warnings and, you know, it didn't do me any harm and all that sort of stuff. All Disney have done is they updated their warning and they've had this warning in place since Disney Plus began last November. So, you know, they've, they've, 
and it's not just for animated films it's for for all their content so like you know disney movies from the 60s all of them are racist <laughs> they're all like you know and here, here's some evidence of that <laughs> yeah it's an hour and a half of it <laughs> didn't they like outright redo the segment in fantasia to make it less bad well, it's not even in fantasia that segment i know that they've cut they've cut elements of fantasia there was a um there's a character uh, who was uh, referred to as sunflower who was um when they had the centaurs uh, and she was a, a black centaur and um but she was like caricatured in a kind of a way that's absolutely unacceptable uh and so i think that's been cut out of subsequent viewings um uh, of, of the film I had thought that they had kept the sequence in, but just actually changed visual elements of it. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm, right. Are you thinking of that one below? Oh, they keep it in. This is interesting. They keep it in, but it they crop cool. her out. So the scenes yeah. are in there, but they crop out the character. So they zoom in on uh, centaur bums instead. Oh. That's one way around it. If people are listening and they are curators of controversial content. Happy to help. Yeah. <laughs> what you always find is you always find the people who would not be offended by it demanding to see it. And yeah. it's, it's, it's not up to those people to say whether or not it's offensive. That's, you know, you could say, uh, well, I'm not offended by, by this, this hideously racist film. <laughs> I want to see this racist film. It's not going to offend me. Yeah, yeah, but you don't get it because it's, it's not. It's, it's not offending you. That's why you can watch it. You know, you shouldn't subject it to the people who would be offended by it. So, yeah, just be nice and watch something else. I mean, good God, there's so much streaming going on at the moment. You can, there's plenty of non-racist cartoons for you to enjoy. It's like, get stuck into those. Oh, we've got a, a, a message that just pinged in. Uh, nope, battery power 15%. Charge your phone or tap it. Okay. False alarm. Uh, who else do we have on the interview docket? Uh, well, uh, we get to speak to the animation legend, Glenn Keane, who uh, we know from, uh, uh, from Disney. Uh, he's part of the, uh, the, the Disney Renaissance. Obviously, he animated a lot of the hero characters. I think he animated Ariel, Aladdin, Beast, Beauty and the Beast, uh, and... Um, uh, Long John Silver in Treasure Planet, as well as uh, as well as many others. So he is something of the the kind of the hero actor of the Disney Renaissance. Uh, and since leaving Disney a decade ago, he's had a a very varied career, which has seen him win an Oscar with uh, Dear Basketball. It's seen him deliver in VR uh, in short form, and now uh, he's got a his debut feature film, which is Over the Moon. To look at, it doesn't immediately scream Glenn Keane, but uh, I guess it sort of goes to what you're saying. He's he's um, trying out all sorts of different things. It's not something that you would immediately associate with Glenn Keane. However, there are elements of that kind of beautiful 2D hand-drawn animation that is utilised in the film, and Glenn does talk about that in the interview. But the film itself, obviously, is CG. Uh, very nicely done CG as well. Very high-quality stuff. Um, the lighting in it is absolutely sublime and i think the obviously the reason that uh, that the lighting is beautiful is because it's based on the moon goddess so there's all that nice kind of translucent lighting throughout 
And uh, yeah, it's a very uh, well put together film. Have you guys seen the film? Uh, no, I heard a little bit about it uh, at Annecy. They did a presentation for it. And um, it's interesting. In, a, in a certain respects, it has some similarities with our other film that we were talking about, Wolf Walkers, insofar as told from the perspective of a strong female lead young lady and rooted very much in uh, particular folklore, particular sort of cultural folklore. And that's another reason why I think Glenn Keane is the director uh, was a little bit of a surprise because he's he's not Chinese, I don't think, mm. being the main one. It was interesting that they were talking about when they actually got him on board. And for them, the people you know behind the film, it was actually a real coup. And I think they met him at Annecy, and it was that they had seen him do a particular presentation that they'd found really inspiring. And um, they knew that artistically they'd found this kindred spirit and that artistic sensibility above all else was what kind of brought them together. I'm paraphrasing from a thing I saw a couple of months ago, but I think that's more or less how it went. No, that's exactly how it went. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously there's, there's the, uh, one of the questions I ask in the interview is about that kind of, you know, um, Glen Keane is not, uh, is not from, from the world that this story is set. He's, uh, he's from a completely different world, very Western world. Uh, and so I do ask him about that, but the film itself is kind of, it's very clearly set in China and obviously a lot of skill and research has gone into that setting. Um, but it, I think it also has a very Western feel about it uh, and quite a neutral feel about it as a as a film. Um, there are kind of the story itself kind of, although it does have the kind of the myth of the moon goddess in the film, the story itself is told in a very kind of um, Wizard of Oz kind of way. You know, it's that story about somebody who gets dragged away into a fantasy land and then makes their own way back home and all that sort of stuff as well. Something else I remembered from the presentation was that the scriptwriter had actually passed away shortly after writing it. Yeah, that's right. It's um, uh, it was uh, Audrey Wells that, uh -huh. um, that, that that passed away, uh, which um, uh, which is incredibly sad. The, the apparent, you know, according to the, uh, uh, the the film, obviously, she put her all into the the making of the film, and um, the story does have themes of mourning and acceptance in it, and I think it's really important that films like that do uh, do have that as a central theme. It's something we've discussed uh, at length on this podcast in the past. The fact that you know films do need to expose audiences to these themes. It's not just about having a laugh. It's about you know learning something along the way. Of course, if you have Netflix, uh, you'll be able to see the film for yourself. It has just come out. And shall we hear from Glenn Keane about Over the Moon? Let's do that. Thanks very much for speaking to Squiggly today. Uh, and yeah. congratulations on your uh, feature debut uh, with uh, Over the Moon. Thank you. Uh, perhaps you could take us back to the beginning and how you ended up uh, directing this feature uh, for Pearl uh, and for Netflix and what appealed to you about the story. Uh, well, I guess it goes back to when we were talking together at Amnesty. That's where it started for me that I gave this talk, um, which was all about everything I love in animation, uh, thinking like a child, uh, believing the impossible is possible. And in the audience that day was Melissa Cobb, who had become the head of Netflix animation, and Palin Chow, 
the head of Pearl Studios, and they had this script about a girl who truly believed the impossible was possible, was going to build a rocket to the moon. And that right after they presented this uh, story to me, and I just felt like, wow, this is something I was born to do. Um, what was your question, Steve? I just got started rambling there. Oh, no, it, it was good rambling. Don't worry. It was quality rambling, Glenn. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, yeah, you, the question was what appealed to you about the story. Um, I also believe uh, that there was a, a moment that brought you back to your own childhood as well with the, the idea of the rocket. Yeah, when I, I got the script and I really, really enjoyed it, um, but I was reading uh, the part where Fei-Fei builds this rocket to the moon, I, I, I realized, hey, I lived this. And I remember when I was seven years old, uh, for my birthday, I had a bunch of friends over and my dad came in and said, um, I've got a, a surprise for you. And they're like, what? I have a friend from NASA and, and they've designed a new rocket. It happens to be in the backyard. And if you'd like, I can take a ride, take you for a ride on it. And we're like, what? Yeah. He said, but, but, but it's top secret. So I'm going to have to blindfold you before you go out to do it. It's like, okay, okay. So as a group of seven-year-olds, we lined up and one by one, you went out and you blindfolded and you could hear ground control, you know, <laughs> and you climbed up onto the rocket and dad said, now this is an open, uh, open cockpit because we're not really going up into the stratosphere. We're just staying kind of low. It'll just be a quick little ride and we'll come back so we can get all you kids onto it. Um, and they're just getting strapped in and you can hear, and you go all the way down to blast off and the whole thing is shaking and you're going up and you're feeling the wind in your face as you're flying. And uh, at a certain point, you, we went down by this lake and you could feel the water splashing by the rocket ship and finally came all the way back. And when you landed and we're climbing, I'm climbing out of the rocket ship, um, my blindfold is removed and there was my mom and my dad on either side of a lawn chair with a fan and a shortwave radio making the sounds. And there was a swimming pool, which was the lake. And, and Steve, the cool thing was I was not disappointed. It was more wonderful because it all happened in my head and in my imagination, uh, I realized everything is possible. And as I was reading the script, uh, I realized I get to take the audience on the same voyage, this rocket ship to the moon. And in a sense, I get to blindfold them, but it's kind of a, in a magical animation way. I get to show them this world, this fantasy world of Lunaria. And so that's, that was really thanks to dad's, um, I don't know, showing me the joy and the beauty of imagination at that age. Fantastic. Uh, the story itself, it's, it's very clearly set in China and a lot of skill and research has clearly gone into creating an authentic uh, Eastern family home uh, and, and, and atmosphere. But as a Westerner, how did you feel about the responsibility to kind of maintain a, a very Chinese story, something that the, uh, the Chinese people keep, you know, hold dear to their heart at the same time, make it really accessible to an international audience? Well, you don't um, want to assume that you can understand a culture 
by reading books or watching videos. You feel like you've got to go there. And when we visited uh, Shanghai and then drove out to this little tiny town of Wuzhen, uh, it's like a little water town, like a little mini Venice. And um, you feel like all of your sensory uh, senses are opened. I mean, everything I smelled, I heard, I touched, I tasted, um, I, I saw, I wanted that in the film. I remember my um, production designer, Celine de Rameau, saying, Glenn, look at the white walls. I said, yeah, they're white. No, they're not white. They're, they're blue and green and yellow. And she was so excited about the reflected light. And, um, and it was just this, we were soaking in everything, the food. We had a dinner around uh, a Chinese family's home and with the grandparents and the kids and the honesty of the family, the frankness. And, um, and it, I realized this is going to bookend our movie, this round family table where Fei-Fei's at odds with everybody at the beginning and then in harmony at the end. And it was, it was really sharing what uh, we experienced there in China. Fantastic. Um, there's 2D animation at the beginning uh, of the film, uh, which is uh, very signature Glenn Keane, I must say. Um, and I noticed you also worked on the, the character design uh, or with the character design team uh, for the story. Did, did you actually have time to animate that uh, sequence at the beginning? Uh, yeah, I knew right as soon as I was reading it, the script, I thought, okay, I'm going to reserve this for me. It needs to be hand-drawn because it needs to stay a graphic representation of Changa. And I get to um, take some of the study that I had been doing, um, drawing from the ancient Chinese uh, images of Changa and the way that these beautiful curves and, and all those things, that's what I wanted to put into that. Um, so, uh what was your question? Where'd you go with it? Um, oh, yeah. Hand -drawn. Yeah. So that that hand drawn was going to be such an important part of this movie for me. I, I have to say that um, I drew more for this movie than I did for Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast. Um, drawing, working with the character designs, but also every shot in the movie uh, I drew over working with about 120 animators where you are, this is the best way of communicating is to be able to draw and animate sometimes little sections of, of something. But um, yeah, drawing uh, is integral to every part of this movie. Fantastic. And um, the, uh, the story in its writing has some very kind of classic movie flavors in there as well. There was a uh, moments where I was watching and thinking, wow, this is, this has got wizard of Oz in it. Um, especially when we enter the land of uh, Lunaria and the moon goddess issues that challenge. Uh, what could you tell us a little bit more about, about that, about those influences? Well, the wizard of Oz right off the bat, you realize this movie has that feeling of, our main character has to travel and go experience 
something in order to come back and continue to move forward in her life. Um, but in Wizard of Oz, it was such a fantastic world. They went from black and white to technicolor. It's like, oh, well, they've already done that. But how are we going to do that? Um, and I remember the uh, Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon with the prism and the white light hitting it, bursting into rainbow uh, colors. I thought that's what we, we've got. It's got to be about light. Celine had said, talked about the, the light reflecting off the white walls. Everything was about reflected light on earth, but on the moon, it will be when you go to Lunaria, it will be the source light coming from the, the goddesses tears that have become Lunaria. And so that was the way that we, we created a world that was completely different than anything you could imagine here on earth. Uh, I, I also caught flavors of maybe sort of yellow submarine and things like that to use uh, other, uh, you know, the, the, the wide range of, of characters and, and, and the ways that the way that everything is. And also the wizard of Oz theme runs through the cast as well. So I believe the aunties and uncle around the table at the beginning also cast, uh, cast as characters uh, within the film uh, later in they're, they're playing the role of the, uh, uh, I suppose the lion, the scarecrow, and the Tin Man. Yeah, it, it was very important for me that there be those elements because this was a way for Fei Fei to resolve the issues. She, when she's at dinner with her family, she's in conflict with everybody. Um, and those are the same people that she goes through in Lunaria. And at the end, when she comes back, nobody has changed but now she's in harmony because uh, she's learned to embrace everybody just the way they are. She's learned to love somebody new. Fantastic. Um, the moon goddess herself, uh, she's been up there for 3,000 years? Uh, thousands, yeah. Thousands of years. Um, and yet there's a very modern take on her. She's, uh, she's like you know Lady Gaga mixed with uh, K-pop. She's got that immense kind of... Uh, a stadium uh, vibe to her presence. Um, tell us about the elements included to, to update uh, the story. Yeah, the so story. we were going to turn uh, the traditional moon goddess on its head um, and with a kind of a nuclear version of Katy Perry and Lady Gaga. With uh, She's a performer, an entertainer. She's become very superficial in a way. Um, Fei-Fei can see a path that where she would become like Chang'e herself if she doesn't deal with this. They both have to become a key to unlock each other. Um, you're, you're looking for the right performer who can deliver the fun of that, but the sincerity. And Philippa Sue uh, was just this, she's like a goddess herself. She's got such a powerful presence, so funny, but also able to deliver something that you really feel for her, her plight. And um, so we were, we were borrowing their goddess, turning it upside down for the fun of it, but then giving her back to the Chinese public in a sense and saying, here's Chang'e, but she no longer is pining away on the moon 
for her lover. She has moved on and like Fei-Fei has learned to be open to love somebody new. Fantastic. Um, we discussed light, the story, uh, and, and um, it is all about light in, in, in a way. Uh, and technically it's a, it's a marvel, this film. Uh, the, there's an incredible uh, achievement in terms of the lighting. That's obviously important to the story uh, as well, to deliver that bright and colourful world uh, of Lunaria. Uh, but also there's darkness in there as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the technical advances, perhaps? Well, the challenges uh, of, of having uh, buildings and everything in the world glowing, even the characters themselves glowing from the inside out, uh, very, very diff difficult and, uh, to figure out how do you light something when there's already light glowing there. And how do you put a character in front of light glowing that way? It, uh, because they're picking up light from all different directions. It was, it really took us some time to figure out how Fei is going to look in that world. Experimenting, working with Sony Imageworks was fantastic. We had a, a production designer up in Vancouver working with the team up there. And I'll never forget the day that, um, Celine showed me the first image of Feifei and how she was going to look in Lunaria with those buildings, keeping them all glowing, but she's reflecting other buildings that you don't see that are coming from the other side, shining back on her. And when I saw it, all I could do was laugh and cry. <laughs> it was just like, I, I've never seen anything so wonderful, so dizzyingly crazy and beautiful at the same time um, that you, you direct hoping for moments like that from your team, that they will surprise you with their inventiveness. Fantastic. Um, speaking of laughing and crying, the themes of the film, uh, there's mourning, there's acceptance, there's, uh, there's a whole range of uh, complex emotions in it. And um, how important is it to tell these stories in family animation? Well, we, we're dealing with themes that are very adult themes in a sense, and yet nobody is immune, no matter how old you are, from dealing with loss um, and your world turning upside down. Um, I mean, at one point, Feifei says, um, I just want things to go back the way they were. I mean, that's... Today, I mean, who wouldn't say that? You want, we are, we're all in a place like that, but there is no way to go backwards. You live life forward. And that forward path for Feifei leads to the chamber of exquisite sadness. Um, it's, it's such an interesting thing. We don't, we don't deal with such a deep subject matter by, um, necessary philosophy or intellectual approach. We do it emotionally through music and through symbols. Um, I think of it more as like a visual poem where children are, are inside of Fei-Fei's heart and soul and mind, and they go on this journey with her. She's the vehicle for them, and we take them into a place where she learns to face loss 
and the way that the way that she comes out of it is by someone else who suffered like her and together they unlock it. And these are lessons that you, you bring with you um, and that we comfort others with the comfort that we've received. And, um, and it changes lives after that. Um, so Fei returns healed like Dorothy does with a new perspective. Um, and the kids get that emotionally. Um, and, and that was our goal. Fantastic. So final one from me. Throughout all your projects um, in, the, in the last um, decade, uh, it's, been in, it's been incredible uh, amount of work for you. You've worked in VR on, on Duet. Uh, you've won Oscars with Dear Basketball and now uh, Future's debut with Over the Moon. Lots of different techniques and technologies there, not all of them 2D. Uh, but is there any one thing that has remained constant for you from a directorial point of view that you always revert back to? Um, I think it's taking something that is like hidden inside of me, uh, and sharing it with other people. Like, you know, if, if I, if I have a pencil, um, it's, it's a wonderful design. Uh, I mean, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. This is the, <laughs> the most sophisticated because I can hold it. And it draws a line down my arm into my heart where I can feel and see, but you can't. But this wonderful tool, it's got a little, you can make a mark with it at the end and I can draw and I can show others what it is I'm feeling. And that's the thing that I really rely upon is that, um, well, drawing to me is like, it, it's like a seismograph of your soul. There's this, you can feel what I feel by, by revealing it, by, by drawing. So drawing has always been this key element to me um, in what I put into everything that I do, but I don't do it as a technical thing. It's a very expressive thing. It's like music for me. Uh, and so anything I do, it will always be based on that very personal expressive tool. The computer is just a very expensive pencil, really. Um, and it, it's a different kind of a design. It's not as simple as a pencil, but for some people it is, they don't draw. And so it becomes like this wonderful tool and whether it's CG or hand-drawn, uh, it's all about revealing what's inside of us. Fantastic. Well, Glenn Keane, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today and congratulations on your feature debut, Over the Moon. Thank you, Steve. Great talking with you again. So thank you to Glenn Keane for talking to us about Over the Moon, which is available now on Netflix. Wonderful stuff. Glenn Keane has uh, been on the podcast before. I believe he was on to talk about his film Dear Basketball, which uh, did that win the Oscar in the end? It certainly did, yes. Yeah. Uh, that was episode 77, I believe. So yeah, Netflix over the moon. Check it out. We have some more uh, messages going back to the DMs here. I got a message from Mr. Joe Wood of Rumpus Animation, a fine organization based here in Bristol. Good old Bradford lad as well. Aye. It says, congrats on the 100th show. As a lifelong fan of Dennis Norden, I'm a big fan of the Squiggly Outtakes shows. 
When going back looking for a favorite outtake, however, this sentence from you really stood out, which isn't officially an outtake. I think it was from the intro. And then he quotes something I said, which was, Congratulations for making it successfully through the unforgiving World 8 Fortress that was 2016. Of course, everyone knows that now that cursed year is behind us. Life's going to be all unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> well, that aged like a fine milk. <laughs> <laughs> What was wrong with 2016? Well, back then, that was like the worst year. Ha! Was that the year when everyone died? No more than usual, but everyone kind of got hysterical about it. That's when, like... It was Brexit and Trump. Was that the year that Bowie and, like, Alan Rickman were like, let's get off this island? Some particularly good ones at the beginning Mm. of the year went, and that cast this, like, dark pool over the year. Joe goes on. Apart from that, interviews are great. But it's Ben and Steve excitedly, grumpily, or piss-takingly discussing the world of animation that I love the most. Well, we live to displease. We can do all three of them at once. Thank you, Joe. Check out rumpusanimation.com for all their lovely work. Who do we have next? Uh, We've got a message here from Joseph Wallace, who was recently featured on the Squiggly Film Club. He joined us for when we watched James and the Giant Peach. Uh, the Squiggly Podcast is a beacon of brilliance in the world of animation oh, podcasts. Mm-hmm. Informative and entertaining over their 100-episode tenure, they've interviewed and reported on the great and good of the animation industry, a fantastic resource for professionals, fans, and students of animation alike. I was thrilled to make my Squiggly Podcast debut during lockdown talking about Henry Selleck's James and the Giant Peach. Well, thank you very much, Joseph. I feel like Joseph would be a good person to write a script for you to act in. Do you think that that was a good pairing, my delivery in that? Okay, we'll work on that, maybe for his next film. (laughs) In the meantime, if you want to check out his current film, look it up on Instagram, at Salvation Has No Name. And one more message. This is from our pal Daniel Gray. Uh, Another one here from another uh, previous Squiggly contributor, our pal Julia Young, who I believe is one of the people who had in the past interviewed Glenn King. I'm not sure if it was on a podcast, but uh, if you go through the archives, uh, I believe it's there. Congrats on 100 episodes. That's incredible. As for highlights, how about the time at Annecy one year that you were interviewing some of us squigglers about what we were excited about at the festival, but we were in Captain Pub. And more than a little tipsy, so the normally excellent production quality of the podcast was very much lowered by our nonsense. <laughs> oh, what a memory. I love it. That was, a, that was a fine episode. I believe that may have been the one where Aaron made a uh, earlier cameo. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I forget the number, but I think we had Chris Renault for who did The Secret Life of Pets. So that's the one to look at. But I do remember recording that one. I was so tired <laughs> and my flight had been delayed like six hours. And I was just like, I was very, I was extra grumpy Ben, which I think makes for more entertaining listening. Passive happy-go-lucky Ben is a fucking bore. <laughs> Need to have a bug up my ass about something. Thanks, folks. And uh, yeah, we might have some more before we wrap up. But uh, in the meanwhile, uh, I believe we've got more guests to hear from. So, yeah, I I got to have a chat with uh, Vanessa Harryhausen, uh, the daughter of uh, Ray and Diana Harryhausen. Obviously, Ray Harryhausen is celebrating his centenary this year. Uh, Unfortunately, he he passed away a fair few years ago, so he's not celebrating it in person. But uh, the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation uh, have got a new exhibition uh, happening at the National uh, Gallery of Scotland. And uh, Vanessa has a brand new book out 
which charts some of the objects from the uh, Ray and Diana Harryhausen collection. Uh, obviously, if you've heard of Ray Harryhausen, if you uh, like the stop motion in even the slightest sense, you will have you will have heard of uh, uh, Ray Harryhausen. He is known as the the Titan of, uh, of visual effects. Um, I've I've got fond memories of uh, jumping behind the sofa for uh, you know when Medusa came on the telly as a kid. Uh, the only time that I ever did that, really, I think you know it's often said that people say you're scared of something you jump behind the sofa and i only ever did, <laughs> i might have said this on the podcast before i only did it for medusa when she turned around and her eyes were all lit up and it was absolutely terrifying uh and i was also scared of the honey monster so i used to run away from the honey monster came <laughs> on the telly as well um but i think um ray did it on purpose i think that's uh that's what makes his work so special <laughs> Great. So uh, she's uh, is she talking about her book? Yeah. So she's uh, she's got a brand new book out. It's called Ray Harryhausen, Titan of Cinema. Um, and what she does in the book is she takes a hundred objects from the uh, Ray and Diane Harryhausen Foundation, which obviously preserve, protect, and promote uh, the puppets and the uh, every, all the bits and pieces that go into uh, into Ray's films. Uh, and she selected them, and she tells a story about each one, or you know, friends of the the foundation tell a story about each one. And um, what I what struck me about this book and why I wanted to get her on the podcast to, to interview her is that obviously a lot what we do on Squiggly a lot is we go behind the scenes. We go behind the scenes and, and take a look at how an animation is made or or how something is produced or made or you know that's 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 what we do. But this interview with Vanessa is behind the scenes of behind the scenes because she was she was there as a kid uh, while all this was going on, and so she had a. a uh, a slightly weird upbringing, which you'll, there's some very funny stories that she goes into uh, in in the interview. Uh, do you guys have any particular favourite Harryhausen films or memorable creatures or any of that sort of stuff that kind of stands out to you? Yeah, I think we, we chatted about this a bit when we had the other chaps from the Harryhausen Foundation on about a year ago. Mm. I always like the big bugger on the beach. <laughs> Talos, yes, the big Talos. bugger on the beach. <laughs> he was pretty creepy. Like, even as a, you know, because I didn't really see that as a kid, but as a, you know, student, I guess, when I saw it for the first time, it's actually kind of unsettling, you know, the quality of the movement, the the sort of feeling of it being a sort of, I don't know, you got this sense of threat that you don't usually get from films of that era. You know, the, the practical effects, you know, they're very charming, but they don't necessarily translate to an actual feeling of like, uh-oh, um, but that was a well-done sequence, you know. Mm. And it's, it's amazing, isn't it, from a, a from a kind of special effects point of view, that a puppet that's what thirty centimeters tall can look like it's the biggest thing in the world looking down on you. Mm. Uh, what about yourself, Aaron? Have you got any particular favourite nasty beasties from uh, not, uh, Ray's back catalogue? Not really nasty. It's probably the cliched one, the skeletons. I mean, it was the first one from Jason and the Argonauts. It's the first one that I remember seeing because it's one of my dad's favourite films, and I can remember being really young and watching this with him, and just that sequence, which is now obviously the classic. It's just stuck in my head more than anything of his work. So first, hear his name, that's always what I think of straight up. Yeah. Uh, did you watch him growing up, Laura? No, not at all. But I think I, similarly to Aaron, the uh, skeleton's always a favourite of mine because they're quite an engineering feat, for, especially for the time. But also they've, they're such a part of the the cultural zeitgeist. Like they've been referenced so many times in stop motion things. There's a, a new short film that's got sort of going around at the moment that sort of uses them 
uses uh, the skeleton as sort of the main character in a kind of homage to Ray Harryhausen. There's always something that's that amazes me. Obviously, running uh, running a festival is whenever you get a puppet out, it is like you've got it is like an you know even though it's like you know glassy hide or you know, effectively dead, uh, you get a puppet out and everyone flocks around it. Everyone absolutely falls head over heels in love with it and has to run up to it and stare at it uh, in the eyes and uh, and just wants to be close to it. We found that with um, uh, with with you know loads of things at the animation festival and you know one year um, Bagpuss just made an appearance out of a, a, a Sainsbury's bag for life just <laughs> plonked on the table. Daniel Post going, well, there you go, there's Bagpuss, and it's like everyone everyone in the audience is like, oh, it's Bagpuss, oh my god, and it's like, yeah, I just brought it up on the train, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, but what is it? What 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 captures people about the magic of puppets? Do you think? They're real. I know they're not moving at that point in time, but they're real. They're there. They were they're real. Probably, they were beautiful. They're they probably were more part of the, the internal memory of children, you know, people who were children at the time. That it's like meeting all of the best celebrities. And also you're aware that they were made by someone. I remember seeing the puppet from Next when Barry Purvis was doing a presentation at the festival like nine years ago or something. And yeah, that was almost like we said before, like meeting someone famous. It was, it was a very bizarre interaction. So it was a bit similar, but not quite as much. But when we went to that Kubrick exhibition and seeing all the props and the costumes and things, very, very iconic actual props from movies and certain items that held, you know, real, real, like a real connection to amazing sequences from these films. Yeah, it was it was a similar kind of feeling, but I think maybe because of Hobbit has a face, it's it's that little bit extra weird. Yeah. Whereas I was just I was staring into you know the eye of the big white porcelain cock from a clockwork orange and it didn't feel quite the same connection <laughs> but i was rooted to the spot yeah we were lucky enough to get the uh, the puppets the skeleton and the kraken from um clash of the titans to uh to my university uh or the university i work at a couple of uh, a year or so ago to do some 3d scanning of the of the of the puppets and it was like a celebrity had turned up it was incredible, uh, and it was great because I'd be, you know, I'd send a quick email to the people who who, who were in charge to say, uh, do, you, "Do you like celebrities?" Well, there's a big latex one that's <laughs> coming into the turning up. Big latex celebrity. I don't even want to go there. Um, there's <laughs> a big uh, uh, latex one turning up to uh, you know to Prince City in a couple of days, uh, and just the people who turned up, uh, and people from animation companies who who had kind of just said, "Oh, I'm doing a thing with." With, with the Harryhausen puppets. So they turn up and bring all their stuff as well because they just want to be close to this stuff. It's it's amazing, the power of puppets. Mm -hmm. I had this little tradition each year at the Bradford Animation Festival. They're on the top floor. They have all the puppets. They have a lot of puppets. They've got Barry's puppets. I think they even had a Harryhausen puppet, didn't they, up there at one point. And um, all of these other TV shows from like mine and our parents childhood and i just used to pay a little visit and like walk around really slowly and meet the puppets every year and it had it's that strange attraction where it's like seeing old friends and yeah it's undescribable really but i think it's because of that celebrity and they are real type feeling you get from them so we're showing my inner nerd there when it comes to stop motion but oh mate i was two feet behind you doing the same thing <laughs> 
Uh, so we've got an interview here with uh, Vanessa Harryhausen, who we said earlier on, who's uh, the uh, the daughter of uh, of Ray Harryhausen. Obviously, grew up in a, a world surrounded by monsters, and which would, sounds like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something. But um, yeah, she grew up in a, in a world uh, as, as a dated reference. Guess what? I'm rewatching on Amazon Prime um, to get through lockdown. Um, it's a she obviously grew up in the house full of. Uh, uh, all these fantastic creatures and uh, with a, a dad who was always tinkering around with uh, models or making movie deals or flying around the world and, uh, and meeting up. So we've got a behind the scenes of behind the scenes of the, the world, the life, and the films of uh, Ray Harryhausen. And she's also got a new book out, which she tells us about as well. So uh, should we hear from Vanessa Harryhausen? Sounds good. So, Vanessa Harryhausen, thank you very much for speaking to Squiggly today. You have the rather uh, enviable experience of growing up with animator, visual effects titan and producer Ray Harryhausen as a dad. Uh, and it's those experiences which have been translated into a brand new book uh, called Ray Harryhausen, Titan of Cinema, which is published by National Gallery Scotland to celebrate the centenary of your father, Ray Harryhausen. You must be very excited by the exhibition as well, uh, as well as the book that's been released. Um, yes. Uh, hi, Steve. Um, it, it's it's wonderful. I wasn't intending to write a book, but it was really um, to celebrate his 100th birthday that he would have been on the 29th of June this year past. So, um, yeah, it's just from my point of view, a bit of a family side and a bit of it's not supposed to be technical or, or heavy. It's just growing up and my observations and, and things that happened and it's just a little bit different and I just thought it'd be nice to celebrate you know his centenary really. It's a wonderful perspective I, I think even though you say that it's not supposed to be technical or any, any of that what you've done in the book is selected a hundred objects from the collection uh, and those objects do have technical aspects but they also have very personal aspects as well so no two objects are the same and no two objects have the same experience. So it's great to be able to be allowed into this kind of behind the behind the scenes look at the life of Ray Harryhausen. Um, but reading the book, I noticed that you were obviously, uh, you know, growing up with your dad means that you were, you were taken around on set and uh, visiting your, your father's workplace. How was that uh, being on, on set as a kid? It must have been like a giant playground. Um, well, yes. Uh, in the book, you will have seen the very, very early one of me on the set of uh, Valley of Guanji. And uh, I don't really remember that, uh, except for sitting on a horse and also uh, Gila Gola, the, the main star in that film, off scene. We've got a beautiful picture of her holding me. And I remember as a wee child saying, pretty girl, so pretty, pretty girl to Gila Gola. But um, that's, that's the memory on that film. Um, but, yeah, I had the pleasure of being on, on set for Golden Voyager Sinbad, um, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, and also um, Clash of the Titans. Fantastic. Uh, those must be, uh, they must be absolutely fantastic kind of, a fantastic way to grow up amongst uh, all those uh, those Hollywood stars and uh, to see the technical aspects of things. I mean, what did your dad think about having uh, having the family there? I mean, your father always strikes me as somebody who uh, relied on family quite a lot. And in the book, you do go on to describe the fact that um, you know Harryhausen is is very much a family uh, business and still is, obviously, with a foundation. 
Yes, um, he didn't mind, you know, ma mainly when I was out of school and it was holidays that I would come over to the Malta or, or to Spain with mum and join them on set for whatever film, say Eye of the Tiger or Golden Voyage or Clash or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, it was very interesting watching him on set, um, you know, getting all behind the camera and everything. And it was a privilege. And, you know, those stars that you see, we, I met Maggie Smith and um, oh, some other people. I miss Laurence Olivier by a day. I would have liked to have a chat with him from Clash. But um, they were just really lovely people. You know, the people on Golden Voyage, Caroline Monroe um, and uh, Kirk Christian, you know, just normal, just doing a job. It sounds really weird, but they were just doing their job and just really nice. And also on set, we used to, at lunchtime, there was a big airplane hangar where crew and um, actors all used to eat on this long, long table. And we all just used to sit together and it was just great fun. And so nobody was sort of uh, on the higher table, shall we say. We all sat together and, and it was like a big family just doing a big job, really. Oh, it's brilliant. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the objects in the book, which might on the surface seem uh, a little unusual, but actually has quite an amazing story, relates to food, relates to, to family dining, I should say. Um, and it's the, the oven that your, uh, your dad used to bake the, um, uh, the, the objects, uh, the latex, I presume, mm -hmm. uh, for, his, uh, for his puppets. Uh, I understand that that broke at one point, and uh, so the family home, the family oven, became uh, became the uh, the oven of choice for for making the models for the films, which had rather uh, disgusting consequences. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Mum and I came back from shopping one day, and and she was very pleased because that week she had bought herself a new Moolah mix, you know, a mixer thing. And um, she hadn't even got it out of the jolly box. And we came back, and as soon as we came through the front door, we knew something was up because you can smell that smell. It's a smell that you never forget. It's latex rubber. And uh, anyway, we, we walked into the kitchen, and there was Dad. He had used her wonderful new Moolah mix to mix the... the um, you know, the rubber and poured it into the, uh, the molds. And it was just small molds. I can't remember what specifically they were, but we had a, a gas oven, which was like ancient. And bless him, he'd put, I don't know, a couple of these small casts in to cook. And oh my stars. I mean, I don't know how long it cooked, but she wasn't pleased because, you know, one, he had used her, her new um, gift to herself and she hadn't even christened it. And two, the oven was going to smell and the whole house smelt. Um, but he said, you know, he had a deadline and it was because his head, he was waiting for it to get a part to come back to get fixed. So normally he would make all that out in the garage in that big box that you see in the, in the picture in the book. So, uh, yeah, so the next few Sundays um, when mum, we always used to have a traditional roast dinner, um, smelt of and tasted of a <laughs> flatex rubber, which was, I mean, the dinner itself was okay, but it's a taste that <laughs> it stays with you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you needed extra gravy for a couple of weeks. That's uh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know so how they did it though, because it was like a gas oven, and I was always worried about the fumes. But I guess he knew. I don't, I'm not a technical person, so um, I'm surprised it didn't um, blow up. But <laughs> I guess you know the chemical compounds or whatever it was sealed it was fine. <laughs> I, I would presume, uh, given uh, given the dressing down from your mother, that he only did it once. Uh, but still, the sacrifices you have to make for your art, I suppose, uh, the sacrifices that the family have to make as well uh, for weeks afterwards. <laughs> yes, let's um, say the atmosphere I, was a bit frosty for a few days after that. <laughs> <laughs> but he met his deadline, that's the important thing. Absolutely. Um, so growing up uh, in the house surrounded by all these wonderful objects um, must have been uh, very tempting for, for a child to think that they're, they're growing up with effectively dolls. Um, yeah, I mean, the, my first sort of, I can't even say it toy. It's not a toy, but Guanji was from the Valley of Guanji, that, that latex model, I was allowed to cuddle and, and hold. And there's a, an old story about me with a baby buggy and Harrods and two old grannies coming in. And I was just small, maybe four or five. And they wanted to see in the buggy and, uh, so I said, oh, yeah, sure, fine. And they pulled back this cloth and there was a snarling rubber dinosaur. And gosh, my mother got <laughs> such a telling off because they said, your poor child is never going to be normal again because you're not giving it normal toys. <laughs> so that was a story about that. And the other ones, yeah, that, you know, I think because I treated them more like pets, um, that I didn't, I didn't pull at them. I, I stroked them and I was, you know, I was careful with them that dad didn't mind, you know, he was very tolerant and I, I had such pleasure with them just sitting by me, you know, whatever I was doing. Well, I mean, obviously growing up with them, were you ever, were you ever scared of the creatures when you watched them on the big screen or, or did, did you find that they were acting differently to how you imagined um, no, I was never scared of them. Um, again, they were just sort of always there. And it sounds a bit um, corny saying, but, you know, it's like having a lamp in your house. You see it all the time and you just take it for granted and it's, it's just there. So, no, they, they, ne they never frightened me. Um, and um, I, I, I just, I love the creatures. They, they didn't have any bad effects on me at all. That's good. Um, well, they're still enchanting today, which is great. Uh, and, and, and obviously seen throughout the book, the book itself is filled with your own favourite objects from the collection and beyond. Uh, but it's not just puppets, there's family pictures, there's books uh, and, and, and inspirations for, uh, for your father's work. But I'm going to ask a rather cruel question now, Vanessa, if you don't mind. If you had to whittle the hundred objects down to a top, let's say three, uh, which ones stand out more than others? Or which ones would you say are the the key ones in the, the Harryhausen uh, history? Well, I think it's some of your old favourites. You know, it's got to be number one is the skeletons, the, the children of the Hydra, you know, from Jason and the Argonauts. That That is, everybody remembers that. Um, and, uh, oh, I suppose Medusa, because people still talk about Clash and Medusa all this time later. So that's two. Um Maybe Carly, I don't know, from um, Golden Voyage. Um, those would uh, be the Yeah, maybe. Because of the, you know, that action scene when she's fighting and the mm -hmm. whole, the movement and everything, I think that's just amazing. 
it's very hard because you know I try not to have favorites and and doing those 100 objects was uh, just awful because you know I love everything and everything's a treasure and it all means very a lot and I didn't want to try and have sort of favorites but I had to choose what would be interesting to the public and and people and and different stories you know and, and the book's full of, uh, of just that as well. Uh, and I do apologize to the, the Harryhausen fans that are screaming, why not Bubo the Owl uh, at, their, at their podcast at the moment? Um, but uh, like I said, it was a cruel question. <laughs> well, I love, um, I love Bubo. I actually do love Bubo. Um, you know, it's, who wouldn't want a mechanical owl to come to life, you know? You mentioned Carly as well, uh, and uh, uh, one of the other objects in, in, the, uh, in the book is the Kraken model from Clash of the Titans, and these have been uh, lovingly restored by uh, Alan Friswell. Uh, uh, what, does it, what does it mean to you when you see like a before and an after from, uh, with, with puppets such as that when they get uh, effectively brought back to life by a restorer? Oh, it's, it's wonderful. Um, you know, Dad hired him specifically um, to do a job and, and obviously put tasks to Alan to, to see if he was up to the job and, and they got on like a house on fire and it's, you know, it's such an honour to have Alan working on these, uh, these, these models and, and the creatures and restoring them. Some of them over time have, have deteriorated quite badly and he's, he's stabilised them and, and done such a wonderful job and I find it very comforting when he's working here. I know it sounds odd, but, you know, it sort of reminded me of Dad tinkering away up in his, in his office in his workshop, you know, and, and just to see Alan restoring these, these creatures that are, some of them are a little bit more fragile and, um, you know, just the color coming back and, you know, it's, it's just tremendous. He has done such a beautiful job and I'm so proud to have him on our team. And I think dad would be very, very honored too, because he's done a superb job. Absolutely. Um, one of the one of the models in the book, which uh, which, which surprised me, comes with a wonderful story about uh, how uh, how your father met your mother, Diana Harryhausen, um, and uh, it's it's a a crab which was just purchased from uh, was it purchased just off the shelf um, and then transformed into uh, into the creature from uh, one million years uh, not one million years BC, which, uh, which mysterious uh, island. Mysterious Island. Uh, one million years might be a little bit too late for that, but um, uh, yes, um, and and it, and, it, and and that made me kind of realise. Obviously, the foundation is called the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, um, and and we spoke earlier on about how your uh, how your father and and the work of your father is very much a family affair. And I wonder, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the. Uh, about how your your mother supported your father, because obviously her contribution hasn't really been elaborated up upon until this new book. How does your mother fit into the Harryhausen story? Um, well, I need to go back a little bit in time. Um, she is a great-great-granddaughter of David Livingston, the explorer. That is the connection between the American and the Scottish side. People always ask, what is the connection between Scotland and America? Why have you got it in Scotland? So that's, I wanted to put that out there and say, you know, that's, you know, she's a great, great granddaughter in that. And then he did a sculpture of her ancestor um, at the Blantar 
David Livingstone Center of David Livingstone being unfortunately mauled by a, a lion and Susie and Tumor, the two pallbearers. And that's a huge sculpture there now. So he, he wanted to honor her. And I suppose it was his way um, to say thank you to her and her support and to a memory of her ancestor too, or our ancestor. Fantastic. Um, that's quite a legacy to have, um, yeah, to have uh, that in your family tree. Um, I suppose for those unfamiliar with the foundation, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the importance of the foundation and its aims and objectives. Um, yeah, the whole point that Daddy put the uh, foundation together was he, I guess over his lifetime, saw friends and relatives or, or, or film people have to get rid of their film memorabilia and stuff. And I think he was worried about what would happen when he passed. So he wanted to put a foundation together to keep it all in it together intact and not be separated. He wanted it for an educational purpose and for fans and anybody to get access to learn a little bit and have pleasure from it. So mum and dad put this foundation together so that um, these things would be kept all together and, um, you know, people would have access through hopefully later on through different colleges and other things um, to, to, to see the works and the artwork of, of dad. So he, that was a way of keeping it, you know, so it wouldn't be separated, auctioned off or anything like that. And bless him, you know, he was a hoarder. Well, I say hoarder, but he never threw anything out. And uh, thank God he didn't because we wouldn't have this magnificent collection and we're still finding, you know, wonderful stuff um, in boxes and things that were tucked away and, and whatnot. So it was really the, the whole purpose of the foundation is for um, keeping it together, but also to put it out there to the general public who wanted to learn a little bit about art, animation, sculpture, and just inspirational, really. Fantastic. Um, and, and absolutely quite a pivotal character in the history of visual effects and stop motion animation. So uh, all, 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 we're all very glad that he was a hoarder and that you guys have managed to, uh, you know, preserve, protect and promote uh, his, uh, his legacy. If anyone is taking anything away from, uh, from this new book, uh, anyone who thinks they know Ray Harryhausen and the work of Ray Harryhausen, uh, is there any kind of misconceptions you'd like to uh, to address and to say, you know, you like to think that Ray Harryhausen is this, but this is actually who the man himself is. Um, well, I wanted to put out there also that he wasn't just a, a, an animator and made films and that his artwork and his sculptures are absolutely amazing. And he started this very, very early on in his life um, with wonderful backing from his mum and dad who helped him make his first films and stuff in the garage in, in, in America. So um, <clears throat> just really want to... I don't know how you'd get it across. Just show all his beautiful techniques, you know, from the drawings to, you know, why the National Galleries have got his work is because they wanted to show the artwork. He was an artist as well as a, a film director and producer. He was a one-man band. He, it was amazing that he could do all these other different things 
just one man. And today I think that would be pretty hard push because with your technicians and stuff on films and other writers and, and, and artists, you have so many. But dad seemed to do it all herself. So that's what I wanted to get across. Fantastic. Well, Vanessa Harryhausen, thank you very much for sharing those stories uh, about your father, Ray Harryhausen. And congratulations on the book, Ray Harryhausen, Titan of Cinema, uh, and the uh, exhibition. Oh, well, thank you. And I hope you get to come and see it. It is on until September next year, 2021. So hopefully this wretched pandemic will be away by then and um, lovely fans and people who are not maybe interested in films. It's not just for film people. It's for all walks of life because it's about his art as well as his films and his sculptures. So hopefully it'll give a nice variety for people who aren't particularly film minded. Um, we'll see the art side um, and the creation in it. Fantastic. Well, there's plenty there to see. So uh, thank you very much, Vanessa Harryhausen, for talking to Squiggly today. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye. So thank you very much, Vanessa Harryhausen. So the exhibition is out now. So it's um, Ray Harryhausen, Titan of Cinema. It's open at the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art uh, from the 24th of October, and it runs until September 2021. So hopefully... The world will be back to normal and we'll all be able to head up to Edinburgh to take a look at the, uh, the work of Ray Harryhausen. Apparently, it's um, the most comprehensive exhibition of Ray's work to date, so uh, plenty there. And obviously, Ray Harryhausen, Titan of Cinema by Vanessa Harryhausen uh, is on sale from uh, October 26 uh, and can be purchased from National Gallery Scotland as well as all good bookshops. Fantastic. So we have a few more messages from these squiggly listeners and uh, readers out there. This is from Joe Hepworth, who uh, we featured on the site not that long ago for her work on the show Love Monster. I always enjoy when either you or Steve don't enjoy a film. Even better when you don't agree on whether a film was good. I like a grumpy review. But interview-wise, Lisa Hannawalt was my favourite because I'm a big BoJack fan. Remember, Lisa Hannawalt was a good interview. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Joe. You can find her on Twitter at Joe Hepworth and on Instagram at Joanna Hepworth. Who else do we have? Uh, we have a message from Lauren Orm of um, Cardiff Festival and various other things. Uh-huh. She says, the first time I ever heard the Swiggly podcast was in Joanna Quinn's studio, so I knew it must be cool. I subscribed then and there and the Squiggly gang have been keeping me company while I've been hunched over a table ever since. Squiggly have always been awesome in supporting Cardiff Animation Festival and Cardiff Animation Nights right from the early days, and I'm super grateful for everything they do for the animation world. Happy 100 episodes, Squiggly. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, Of course, uh, as we mentioned before, you can find out more about the Cardiff Animation Festival at cardiffanimation.com. She's also at laurenorm.com. And we spoke to her on this podcast in episode 93. So go back and check that out. Her film Creepypasta Salad is online now, and it's rather splendid. One more message. This is from uh, our pal Daniel Gray, director of such films as Tom and Teeth and uh, more recently Hyde. My favorite podcasts of yours were always the festival coverage ones. It's always great to hear what's going on when you can't make these things yourself, especially from you, Jolly Folk. I think he might have us confused with Jolly Folk, but otherwise (laughs) I uh, agree with that sentiment. I think that ties in quite a lot with what we were talking about before, 
Here's to uh, brighter days ahead in the return of festival culture as we once knew it. Fantastic. What I've heard from all these fantastic well wishes is that people want more Squiggly Film Club and they want more festival coverage, but no one's complimented the actual podcast that we got to 100 episodes in. <laughs> no, no one. I think uh, read the room, guys. Yeah. The, the chat in. room got a mention, I think, as well. Yeah. So thanks for joining us to the last episode of the Squiggly Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We shall, of course, return before the year is through, as we uh, uh, suggested earlier. I think some more squiggly film clubs are on the cards. Uh, maybe come the Christmas season, maybe we can put our heads together and think of some good Christmas films to watch. Of course, anyone out there listening, if you have any ideas, let us know. Well, until then, gang, do we have anything to plug? Uh, I think we all do at this point. Yeah, Oh, yeah. I've got a festival coming up. Um <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, what have I got to plug? Why have we all got something to plug? I've got nothing to plug. Oh, yeah, the thing that I'm doing, like, for 12 hours a day. Uh, yes, uh, Manchester Animation Festival is 100% online this year. It's coming back from the 15th to the 30th. We've got uh, Snowden Fine. We've got a work-in-progress talk of uh, The Inventor with Jim Cavabianco. Passion Pictures. We've got an international film screening competition. We've got the UK premiere. Uh, of Calamity, we've got Joseph, we've got lots and lots and lots. Uh, we've got social uh, evenings as well uh, with uh, mocktails, uh, which anyone who turned up to gag reels last year, it should be just as much fun. And we've also got our little quiz as well. The squiggly quiz is returning. Yay, can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's the 15th to the 30th of November. Um, yeah, lots of live stuff as well. Tickets on sale, manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. Fantastic. It's also a busy few weeks ahead for our films, uh, starting with the Cardiff Animation Festival. You can catch Laura's film The Gift in their Shorts 2 Body program, which will have its watch party on October 27th at 4pm. And my film Speed is part of the Shorts 3 Heart program. The watch party will also be on the 27th at 7pm, and uh, all the programs will be available from October 24th through to November 1st to uh, festival pass holders. If you are in attendance, then you might want to check out the Filmmaker Brunch Q&A sessions that Laura and I will be hosting. They're free to attend, and they take place at 11am on October 25th and November 1st. And there's some great filmmakers lined up who are going to be talking with us about their work. So uh, hopefully see some of you there. The whole festival is looking absolutely fantastic, so check out the full schedule at cardiffanimation.com. I think we mentioned before there's going to be a special Visible and Visuals panel on October 29th at 6pm. That's one to look out for. As well as presentations from Moomin Valley, uh, Dave Spud, Bob's Burgers. Just a fantastic lineup. Another fine festival to feature both The Gift and Speed is the Manchester Animation Festival. You can catch The Gift as part of their short films panorama from November 15th, and Speed is part of the notorious Math to Dark program. And that's going to be a streaming one at 9pm on the 18th. And in between those, as previously mentioned, our Squiggly Quiz is going to be on the 17th at 9pm. So come on down. Once again, the website is manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. Slightly before that, Speed is going to be part of the Interfilm Festival in Berlin as part of the Eject 23 Long Night of Weird Shorts. As well as the digital presentation, this one will be part of an open-air screening at 7.30pm on November 12th. Visit interfilm.de for the specifics on that one. 
In the nearer future, however, there are also going to be a couple of rarer screenings of my previous film, Sunscapades, both of which, interestingly, taking place in Spain, the first in Valencia, for the Maniatic Fantastic International Film Festival. That'll be part of the children's session, okay, on October 30th at 5pm. Hopefully it's not going to give any kids nightmares. The full program and venue information is available at maniaticfilmfestival.com. Then just over a week later, Sunscapades will also be screened at the festival Bidefest Roses in the slightly less kid-friendly screening Horror Geek COVID Block 7, and that takes place on November 7th from 10pm at the Municipal Theatre of Roses. You can keep up to speed with that event via their Facebook page, facebook.com slash Bidefest, B-A-I-D-E-F-E-S-T. And there are a few more for later on in November and December, but I don't think I can announce them yet. So to keep up to speed with any updates, check my website, ben-mitchell.co.uk, also facebook.com slash benmitchellcreative. Aaron, do you have anything to plug, any websites or things people can uh, check out? Uh, there is a website that I run, actually, animationfestivals.com, which, if you haven't heard of it already, it's a website which aims to list every animation festival in the world or film festivals which have an animation-specific category. Um, so useful if you're submitting your films or if you fancy a visit to a festival next year. Check that out. Brilliant stuff. I, uh, I use it all the time. It's a great resource. Well, Aaron Wood, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. And uh, maybe we'll hear from you again in the not-too-distant future. See you at 150. <laughs> 200. 200. <laughs> Thanks to all of you for uh, tuning in over the years and uh, to those of you who got in touch with uh, well wishes. We all think very highly of you. Of course, you can check us out on Twitter at Squiggly, on Instagram at Squiggly Animation. We're at facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. And the website is squiggly.com for all of your animation needs. We're there for you. Uh, right on, until uh, we eventually continue in some form or other. Happy animating! Bye-bye! Bye-bye! Bye-bye.